Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Phil Donaldson continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 60. And now, here's Phil. Good morning, everyone. Uh, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're continuing in our series through the early church's uh, life, and uh, we're up this morning to partway through or the last latter part of Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. We will not take time to read all 60 verses of chapter 7 and those in chapter 6, so I'd just ask that you keep your Bibles open so that you can check what I am saying against what's written in those particular particular verses. What happens when the entitlement of power and the pride of leaders collide with a, dis, uh, a committed disciple and servant of Jesus? The story that's before us this morning is the story of one such collision. And the lessons of the story are so many, time will beat us, I'm sure, as we consider them along the way. When power and pride collide with promise and providence is the theme of, uh, or the structure of the, and the theme of what I'm going to try and have a look at in this, in this chapter. Let's look for a moment at the background or to the, to the collision that, that occurred at the end of the chapter. Uh, and we want to uh, just highlight them very quickly without any comment. But it sows the seeds of what was going on that resulted in the end uh, of the life of the disciple uh, Stephen. Peter preaches the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Peter and John, the healing of the beggar in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin for their preaching about the Jewish leaders and the rejection of Christ. Friend-building kind of uh, situation as they went along. The apostles were arrested. They then escaped, but then continued to preach, and they were put before the Sanhedrin uh, for a second time, actually. And Peter accuses them all of hanging God's sent one on a tree. And then we come to this morning's story. Stephen, we met him briefly last week, a deacon in the church, as Wade so amply uh, uh, taught us about last week. And uh, his, uh, he was a preacher and a healer, and I'll cover those in a moment. Uh, and then the synagogue Jews, a synagogue uh, of Jewish people, brought him to the Sanhedrin with various charges. And that's the beginning of our story. Just a brief view of uh, Stephen, I'm, I'm really touched and challenged by thinking about this man, Stephen. It wasn't very long since the resurrection of Christ, and we see in this uh, disciple a tremendous maturity, a tremendous knowledge and understanding, and a tremendous commitment to what God had for him. And uh, just think of your Christian life. Assuming you were a Christian before God at this time. How long have you been a Christian? How long have I been a Christian? One year? Two years? Well, oh. <laughs> don't do any math here. 
uh, Stephen was a, an exemplar of Christian service uh, with such power at such an early uh, life as a Christian uh, showed us. He was a Hellenistic Jew in Jerusalem. As we noted, he was chosen as one of the deacons, and therefore he was chosen on the ba- and he was full, therefore he was full of the spirit and wisdom. He was to be one of those who assisted with the equitable distribution of food, and he would help draw the balance as a Hellenistic Jew to the Jews who were getting the favoritism at the time. Stephen was described as one who was full of faith, of God's grace, and God's power. Do those describe you and me? I pray it does, and for me too. He was a preacher as well as a deacon, and he was a healer, and we see that he was a debater. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And he was an active participant through his death of the magnificent growth in the Jerusalem church. What kind of life would describe us if someone was doing such a summary of your life or my life? Next slide is helping us set the stage for the courtroom drama that's before us. I'm only going to briefly touch on this for the context, but... Up on the right-hand side, doesn't show well there at all, but the, and I don't have my pen with me this morning, but that around this, the Mediterranean Sea, the top slide on the right, is the, is the Roman government and its uh, number of provinces that he had all around the Mediterranean Sea, including Palestine or Israel. And we know about King Herod, uh, King, sorry, uh, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus and the other Caesars who were uh, saw themselves as sons of God and with divine uh, em- entitlement and uh, power to reign and so on. And uh, they had an, a structure all colored in yellow. Again, you can't see that either. Uh, on the right-hand side of the chart, he had the Senate, and he had the military, and in, as far as Palestine was concerned, he had a Roman prefect, and we've met one of them, Pilate and others in Scripture. And their role was, uh, was mainly militaristic, and collection of attacks and uh, uh, to, to Rome, of course. Now, the rest of this chart over here is the uh, the nation of Israel underneath the Roman emperor. And uh, King Herod uh, uh, was an example of the provincial leader of the Jewish nation, and lots of times the Jewish area uh, uh, around it with Gentiles in them, of course, as well. And then there was, this is not an organization chart, but they had the high priest and the priesthood as, a, as an entity that's seen in Scripture. They had the police control over the temple in particular and other military activities granted to them by the Romans. And this morning we come to what's called the Great Sanhedrin. We'll show a bit more of it in a moment. And there were local, underneath the Great Sanhedrin, there were other judicial bodies. And in those days it wasn't a separation of religion and state. They were combined together in their, in their entities and power and, uh, and, and uh, purposes. Uh, underneath the great Sanhedrin, there were the local governances consisting of uh, small Sanhedrins, uh, the synagogue of the town or village, and the, and the priesthood uh, throughout the nation. So it's a brief contextual thing of how the, of how the uh, structure of things were in those cultures and societies. Next slide. The, this particular slide, I don't expect you to read it, and it's just for your study later on. 
But in, in Israeli culture, there were also three main political parties, which were also religious parties. We've seen them in scripture, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And I've just given that to you for your homework later to see what the differences of those people were. They don't really show up in our story directly. <clears throat> the next slide shows us the, uh, uh, again, the background or to the collision, to the collision in, in the Sanhedrin's uh, uh, building. And I was curious to know what the building was. And you see a, an artist's uh, view of this. Uh, the Talmud says that uh, this is where the great Sanhedrin met. And the, that building doesn't show on the slide too well, but it was partly inside the temple area and partly outside because it was dealing not just with uh, religious and sacred things inside the walls, but things outside the walls as well. Interestingly enough, according to the Talmud, the, the place was called the Hall of Hewn Stones. And I won't go into this, but in the inside... Just briefly, the, uh, the temple was not to be constructed by uh, stones that were hewn by any iron implements. And interestingly and ironically, it was called the Hall of Hewn Stones. Undoubtedly, some of those stones were used to be picked up and, uh, and uh, used to stone uh, Stephen in his death. The Sanhedrin is an interesting body of the great Sanhedrin had a membership of 71 members. And this reaches back into the Old Testament with Moses and Moses was looking for some more help. So he was appointed 70 people from among the uh, among the nation at the time and adding him to it constituted 71. And this is this was the history of the formation of this great Sanhedrin, powerful over Jewish religious affairs and most and oftentimes the political as well. If you're interested in numerology in scripture, 70 is a very significant number and uh, applies to many things throughout scripture. But we won't take that rabbit trail at the moment. So to the story, the uh, next slide. I asked you to do in your homework for this week uh, an identification of what was going on in this courtroom trial. First of all, there were the accusers in the story. And uh, I'd just like to read that bit that starts the story off. Acts chapter 6 and verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. The people and the elders and the teachers. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So we, we see that the formal accusers were this group of Jewish people who had their own synagogue in the center of Jerusalem. And they were it was called the synagogue of the freedmen, according to our chapter. They were, they were, the reason for that name was that they were Jews from all around the Mediterranean who were a freedmen from slavery. So they were Jews who were when, they were, when they were present in, some of them living there, of course, when they were present, they were in their own synagogue and they were debating with Stephen when they heard his preaching and they were overcome with the wisdom and strength of his argumentation and the power of the Holy Spirit evidenced in, evidenced in his teaching 
and they, they uh, became a problem for, uh, for Stephen. So they were the accusers. But in the accusers, they dragged along the people, the rulers, the elders, many of whom would have, I'm putting a reading between the lines a little bit here, would have been also members of the Sanhedrin. So what you have taking place here is the accusers, the prosecuting attorneys, become the judge. So we have this tremendously unjust uh, uh, working of the leaders of Israel at the time. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they uh, acted as the policemen as well, by the way. They seized Stephen, dragged him to the Sanhedrin uh, for this, in quotes, trial. I'd like to look at uh, the defense by Stephen, which was another of your homework uh, exercises, to look at the uh, some general observations before we get into the details. They're, they're very interesting. Consider for a moment before I say these things that you're Stephen. And you're the one dragged into this uh, place and being judged. And how would you defend yourself against those accusations made? First thing I noted is that they, his opening words were words of respect for their position of leadership. They didn't respect who they were how they were acting that day, I'm sure, as it comes out shortly. But he did start off with opening words of respect to his brothers and to his fathers, as he calls them. Notice that he's, as he begins his, uh, his defense, he's not speak, you don't hear him speaking about himself and his involvement or what he said. Notice, too, that there is no advocate lawyer here. There's no defense attorney in the, in the courtroom except for one person, the Holy Spirit guiding Stephen. And his main opening words was, listen to me. But we soon realized sentences forward in the story. Listen to God. Listen to God. And I just skipped through the chapter and noticed that Stephen almost never refers to himself in his defense of himself. Some 40 times he talks about God said, God did. I, I'm quoting God, I did this, I did that. And that is the whole nature of his defense as a general comment to watch for as we go through the chapter. Notice that his defense begins with the God of glory. To reinforce this point and ends with the glory of God. When you're put in a tight squeeze as a Christian disciple, following him to the best of your heart, don't get lost in yourself. Don't get lost in me-self. Look to God. This is all up to him. And don't be just get defensive about who you are in the situation. It's about God's work and purpose in the situation that's really important. And that's how uh, Stephen carries on. Read verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And then at the end, verse 55, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So his, defenses, uh, were bracket, his defense was bracketed by looking to God, the God of glory, and what he did, and 
what uh, he ended up with the glory of God in his uh, relationship with him as his disciple. The, uh, the, continuing for a moment, moment more on the general observations, we've already talked about the accusers becoming the judges and the accused becomes the accuser of the judge's treatment of God's law and dwelling place. So that's the main point we want to follow is he, Stephen, becomes the accuser of the judges under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So he's, uh, the Holy Spirit is becoming uh, the primary uh, defense offered uh, to, to the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin board as it, as it existed at the time. Uh, next slide. Uh, next slide. Now, we're going to repeat these accusations so we understand what they were. Uh, when Stephen starts to speak, he reverses the order that he was presented them in, and that's natural because the, the law predated the temple. And so he started with, the, uh, with this, uh, their claim that he was speaking against the law and that Jesus will change the customs Moses handed down. And he was secondly accused that he would speak against this holy place and thinking that, uh, that he was preaching blasphemously that Jesus would destroy this place. Well, that's a deeper subject and we don't have time for uh, this morning. What I'd like to do next is uh, turn to the, uh, as we, I want us to chart the collision and how it unfolded in the defense in more detail. When I first was studying this chapter, I thought a little bit, I couldn't figure it out actually. Why is Stephen giving them a history lesson? And a lot of people like me go through this and just say, well, he was reminding them of their history wasn't too far in it that I realized that he was selectively, historiographically pulling out particular aspects of Jewish history to focus on how the religious leaders reacted to God's work and his promises and the law and so on. So the structure of this, uh, I'm missing my red pen here, but. The structure of this is we're going to, first of all, move through Abraham and Joseph leading up to Moses and find out what his, his point was. He's defending the law in the, uh, these and the slides on Moses, starting over there. Starts with Abraham and he goes on to Joseph. No, go back. To... So we have lined up, as I started on the title of this talk, we have God's promises. And then we have God's providence, which is how God carried out his promises, his will, his plans and purposes, and how he did that exactly. And then I searched in each case, and I may be stretching the boundaries just a little bit, but I don't think so. Uh, How did the patriarchs react to what God was doing is Stephen's basic defense. And he's trying to give them the message right from the get-go to the judges before him, that just like the patriarchs of old rebelled against God in their hearts, you are doing that today. That's the basic defense that the Holy Spirit is putting before them. And he's doing it not in a way just to put them in prison, but an opportunity for God to work in their hearts to turn from their pride and their power and their entitlement and become uh, a follower of Jesus. So I think we, if we look at the big picture, I think that's what it kind of looks like. And we don't have time to go through these uh, verse by verse. 
Abraham's promise was, and these stories are well known, his people, and uh, they would have their land. Abraham had, Abraham had no descendants, but the promise was made for descendants, and God provided uh, children to Abraham and Sarah to be those, the beginning of that providential line of God's commitment to, uh, for his people to have their land. But then they didn't, and that, oh, sorry, then in the reaction of the patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph, and that, that means there's overlapping between these, obviously. They tried to kill him. They tried to get rid of the one that was favored by Abraham and the patriarchs, uh, you know the story well. Uh, tried to drown him in a well and, and uh, get rid of him. But God providentially protected Joseph and brought him uh, to, uh, to Egypt. One of the things that uh, also here is, is important is that when there is a prophecy of, or promise of God that Joseph's descendants and his, his, that the people of that time will serve as slaves. So ahead of the event in Egypt where they became slaves, God it was part of his overall plan and providence for his people. I look at this that the patriarchs were given a chance at reconciliation with God's chosen. And I'm not sure exactly what was in the hearts of those that's 70 some people that went down to Egypt of Joseph's family to see him there. And they had their opportunity to repent and to turn and to follow God in their own way, not just for the grain, not just for their starvation that they were in the middle of, but for God's purposes in their lives. Uh, And uh, I look at that similarly to the judges that were before Stephen that this was a chance for them to uh, be reconciled with God's chosen. I just want to pause for the life lessons as we go through here a little bit. God's promise and providence in your life and mine. God's promises to you, his calling of you. We're, some of us are getting older and we, like Moses, have these phases in our life and we just look at it and say, what, was, what is, what will be God's purpose and calling of me in my life live for him. Can we articulate that? Can you write it down and put it on your wall and say, this is what God is doing with my life? The answer is no, it's just a challenge for us as we see what's outlined here as God's providence in people's lives. We've all had turns and we've all had discouraging times. We've all had different phases, but it's just a challenge and an encouragement for us to take every step as a step of faith in God's calling and purpose in our lives and uh, follow him uh, in faith. The uh, next slide talks about Moses, and this is a a tremendous story. It could be 20 sermons by itself, I'm sure. Don't worry, it won't be this morning. But Moses uh, was summarized by Luke as having three phases in his life of 40-year increments, another number uh, that's interesting. His first uh, 40 years was to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, and these are all in the text. Uh, God's providence was that Moses was no ordinary child, and he escaped the edict of the king to be drowned under the evil of the king of Egypt. And I wasn't aware of this, and it was brought out by Luke. Uh, What was the reaction of the leaders of God's people? And he describes it, Moses describes it, that he felt a calling even then by God, uh, and he had somehow explained those to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians said, who made you to be a ruler over us? 
Who made you to be a ruler over us? I found that very interesting. And, and again, it's the, what's being said by, by Stephen to the judges before him. They are wondering who made Jesus ruler over them. And why was Stephen saying that to them? Still def- Moses, oh, pardon me. Stephen is full still defending uh, the law and what he was teaching about the law. The next 40 years, Jesus, uh, Moses was no longer a prince of Egypt, but he was uh, learning to be a, a shepherd desert, a, a desert of the shepherd. And he was uh, doing that for 40 years. And that, when that period ended, um, it said in the text that the promise of exile of, of the ex, the end of the exile would be fulfilled. An angel appeared to Moses and we know the story well. What was the God's providence? He protected Moses. He trained him in the desert for what was to come when he returned to Egypt to do bid uh, God's purposes to deliver his people, save them from slavery and bring them into the promised land. As to the reaction of the leaders of God's people, they were groaning under slavery to a foreign power. Does that sound familiar? The Israeli race being, a, being governed by an evil power that claimed to be God himself. And they were basically under slavery. If you study the taxation laws and practices of the time, this foreign power was extremely onerous on the Jewish people. And, uh, and so they turned to God was the end of that story. They cried out to him, God save us. And he did through his prom- the promise of Moses. And again, Stephen, his defense was to the, the, those men before him. Uh, this is your situation as well. You're under a foreign power, but you are not turning to the God who has provided you a savior. And, and later on, he's, they, he says it more, uh, um, more clearly, you murdered him, you killed him. And he was the one sent to deliver you. And then Moses' next 40 years uh, was the savior of the people. And he fulfilled that promise of return from exile and brought the people out of, out of Egypt and, were, and delivered them by God. But during that period, of course, the law was given back to his defense point. The law was given. And what did the patriarch leaders do? They rejected it. And they built a calf and they built an idol and they, in their hearts, they, they uh, turned away from God at that point in time. So selectively, uh, Stephen is pulling that out to say, to say to his judges, you, about the law, you want to know about the law? You rejected the law. You sent the one who, you, you rejected the one who was sent to fulfill the law and to demonstrate what the law was about and worked in his life. And what have you done? Uh, you need the, you in front of me need the defense, he was saying. It's interesting here, and this is a segue into the next slide. It's interesting that Moses was told by the angel that there would be a prophet like me sent in a future time. Here we have this working of prophecy through scripture. It's so fascinating here because it comes into play that they, those leaders should have recognized that the prophet like Moses had already been talked about by Jesus. He was that prophet like Moses who came and they rejected him. And uh, you can study that on your own and see if you agree with my, uh, my looking at those, those scriptures. On the next slide, we turn to the, the last part of his defense. It seems like an unfinished work. 
because he looked like he had a longer speech lined up and it was ended, as we know in the story. But the last uh, verses 42 to 54 uh, provide his defense regarding the holy place. I'd like to just read this to you because it has a lot to do with us in our church life uh, several thousand years later. Verse 44, chapter 7. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. Of course, he's he's talking right inside the temple, which was more what the the current lot in front of him were all about. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? I just want to pause there for a moment. And that's the question that we can't avoid as we listen to him. Christians gathered in this way before God. What kind of house are we building for him? What kind of community of Christians are we building before the one who promised to be with us and help us in this work? Where will my resting place be? It's not in fancy cathedrals in the center of Jerusalem and big rocks and stones. It's about God's presence with us in a place. And it's about how we build his presence and understanding of who he is and what he is doing in our lives in the middle of the church community uh, in which we find ourselves. What kind of house will you build for me? And then he turns in verse 51. His defense is becoming the summary of the prosecutions, uh, uh, the prosecutor, Steve, and uh, saying these things. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your father's. You're just like those patriarchs of old who bucked against God, rebelled against him, went against him in the middle of his purposes. You are just like them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Collisions taking full force or full shape here. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the prophets who predicted the coming of the righteous one. I don't have all the references for that. You'll have to look them up, but we'll look, uh, just skip that for now. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. So the collision, there it is. They would not move away from their position of pride and power and tradition and their version of the law's interpretations and all of that package that they had. Their power, their their deal that they had made with Rome, all in one big package of something they just were not willing to give up. So they had to not only get rid of Jesus, but they had to also get rid of his people uh, in the same way. And they were ready to do it. When they heard this, what was their reaction? They had an opportunity to repent, but they turned their back on God and and came as exactly as as. Uh, Stephen was reading their hearts and minds. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Next slide. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
looked up to heaven. I hope that little artwork can be seen there. Not very well, but uh, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a vision he had of God. We sang in our communion service this morning, Be Thou My Vision. And I would like to have seen this painting in uh, in a photo- photographer, sorry, in a ph- photographic image of that day where Stephen was portraying the fullness of the Spirit and and the effect of God's glory shining through his life. At this, the, I, and then he told them, "I see heaven open and the Son of Man, who you killed, standing with the Father at the right hand of God." At this, they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Dragged him out of the city. Does this sound like an equitable, judicious process going on? It was a crowd, uh, crowd out of control. And they dragged him. They dragged him. All of them. The rulers, the leaders, the temple police, the freedmen. They were all in the same camp. And they began to stone him. The, uh, it's interesting here that uh, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I'd like you just as I read these next few verses to reflect on Luke's account of the crucifixion of Christ and see how they line up. I think it's stretching a little bit about the witnesses uh, doing something with the clothing of the process. But uh, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So to ring a familiar tone, from Luke's account in the gospel, where he was talking about the crucifixion. He recorded there, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, said Jesus. Then he fell on his knees, and here's the third one, and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not forgive them, Lord. Be, uh, forgive them, Father, because they do not know what they are doing. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's just pause and place ourselves in his situation again. How would we bring glory to God if we were caught in the middle of such a conflict of two very different views of of life? Would we uh, be like Stephen and have in our hearts and minds God's word to, to govern the way we behave in that situation? And, and would we be Uh, open to the Holy Spirit and full of his influence in our life in those situations to behave as God would have us behave? Would we be relying on God's spirit for the power to do his will at the moment or would we be fearing outcomes and all wrapped up in our own self in that situation? Stephen was totally focused on God's power to carry him through this very difficult collision that came his way and uh, ended his life. So we just uh, close with the, that thought of uh, what the lessons from the first martyr of the church. And we've talked about them all. Stephen was a, an exemplary follower of Christ. It was for him not anything about pride or power. It was only about uh, resisting the political forces going on around him and remain faithful uh, to the Lord Jesus who called him as his ambassador. And he pleaded everyone that day to listen to God. He didn't talk about his own defense. He talked about God and his defense. And I can't help but think of the cost of discipleship that we all talk about, but never face in the, the, the severity that he had that day. 
Have we counted the cost of following Christ, not compromising with the world, not compromising with the tower, the powers that are impinging on our lives? And they can be very persuasive at times. But uh, the cost of discipleship is that we bear that cost, those costs, and remain faithful to him as we walk forward in faith. And also in Stephen's life, he didn't see the results while he was on earth. Out of this, out of all of this, God's providence was overcoming, and he was, and God was sovereignly powerful over using this uh, this particular event to grow the church around the whole Mediterranean world. And Stephen didn't see those results, and it's like us in our lives. We don't always uh, see the results of what we're doing for Christ in this life. Eternity will tell those stories in their full. And we can reflect a lot, if we did a little bit on the way through, about our law, our place of worship. Our law is fulfilled in Christ, and we follow him as our Savior and Lord, and we seek to build a house for him that brings him the glory that he only deserves. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time that we spent together. And we're grateful for the words spoken through song and through Phil. And I pray that as we leave this place, we consider the cost of the gospel. And um, I just pray that we would live in light of uh, a life that was worthy of your calling. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.